I'm Jason Bailey-Losh, and you're listening to Seeing is Forgetting, conversations on contemporary art and culture in Los Angeles and beyond. Today's guest is Dave McDermott. Dave has become a a really close friend over the last two years. He's also one of the best uh, painters that I know, just downright a good artist overall. This conversation is one of those times, I don't know what I'd edit out. In fact, I just want to add more things to it. It's so easy to have the conversation and be really honest about what we're both doing in life and the things that we can attribute our successes to, but also our failures. And it's a rarity to find somebody that will be that open for anyone. He's just an all-around really great guy. So, without further ado, here's Dave. This is the second time we've recorded an interview, right? It is. The first time was pure genius. It was really good. It was a great conversation. This has got to be almost a year and a half ago at least, right? Yeah, it was summer of 2016. Well, look at you. I do, because as we will probably get to, but we were out here for a very specific reason, so it it sort of burned. Oh, you were thinking about moving out here. Yeah. So just to explain before we talk about that, I lost your podcast. It is the only podcast that I have ever went back to edit, and it wasn't recorded for some reason yeah yeah you said there there were there was like one second of it or something is that right it was just it was like a scratch or something and it was the data wasn't there if you clicked on properties or something it wasn't like even i don't know what the hell happened yeah so maybe i should look hang on i was i was really disappointed because i thought i had a great picture for the Like I can't wait until this comes out. So I got a photo for the picture for the Instagram picture. Yeah, are yeah. you going to use the same one for this one? Probably. Yeah. Even though it's two years old. Now. Yeah. So you look younger. I'm younger, slimmer, yeah. sexier, smarter. Yeah. Or the whole the whole. Pattern. Well, what is nice about this is that in that 2000 that day, what is it? Year and a half or whatever. Year and a half about. Yeah. yeah, we've become pretty good friends. We have, and that was the other. <laughs> my wife and I were talking about this uh, before you came out. Yeah. Because we're in California. We're in California. That's right. And um, you live in New York. I live York. in New York. Yeah. Yeah. The, the first time that we did it, we had literally just met. I like think, within a day or two. I think we'd hung out once. With, with John, John Hauk. Right. And that's who we, we met through. And then I don't know which one of I think I don't remember if John it, pitched it. He was like, I think John said something to me on the way over to you. We might have talked about this last time, but John said something to me on the way over to you. We were in the car going to get a tacos or something yeah we're going to smoke and some things yeah he's like oh yeah we're gonna we're gonna go meet my friend this is my john voice (laughs) we're gonna go meet my john we're gonna go meet my uh friend uh dave and i think you should interview him for the podcast and i all i remember thinking i was quiet and i was like i will i will decide who the fuck i interview for my podcast you know you don't tell me what to do john hauk and then I got there and you were really super nice. And I was like, hey, do you want to come on the podcast? This would be great. Maybe it was that karma that you put it into the universe that, that erased the... Oh, you think so? That was from the beginning? I think maybe it was just a power play on my part. <laughs> like I, I didn't hit record at all that entire time. <laughs> That's really interesting, Dave. Tell me more. Tell me more. That's so great. It would have been amazing. <laughs> But now we. Uh, but now we're good friends. And now we, we're good friends. We've and talked we, a lot. We text often and everything. Yeah, it's always fun. I came to, so, I was at your opening your recently a month and a half ago maybe yeah maybe uh, more than two months ago a little I think the opening was February third okay Grim in New York City and right. I try not to say dates on this podcast because then it just dates when I edit these things and oh. actually put them out. So if you could refrain from saying any dates in the future, okay, that would be fantastic. No problem. <laughs> The show in New York was amazing. Thank you. It was really, really good. So I did a post on my Instagram page at the time, and I said, I don't know if any, I know any other painters that are making the work that you're making right now, anybody who's comparable and doing the type of work that you're doing. It's completely unique, and it's sort of, uh, be honest, it like really... It blows me away. When I walked into that show, it was so good. Thank you, man. I appreciate that. Yeah. I don't like this whole, the intent of the podcast is not to talk about like what people are doing right now or like what they're making at the moment, but like for, I want to talk about this a bit, but maybe what I'll do is you have a book that came out. Yeah. The, uh, yeah. I so what's the title of the book? 
The book is called Through the Long Goodbye. Okay, so and it is and it has an index of all of your work at the end as well. Pretty much all of my work. Is that yeah, all of it or no? There are there are a few pieces that I mean at, at a certain point <laughs> I hadn't realized how much work I have actually made. It's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. Um, so which is weird because I feel that compared to you know you hear stories about. Um, let's just name drop somebody, but you hear you hear stories about a lot of artists who was it going to be a negative? Is that why you're? Uh, yeah, <laughs> just you, not being very just, prolific. No, being super prolific. Okay, like, the, the volume of work that they're yeah, making. Yeah, and it's usually the you know the the name of the month artist, and they're they're making like you know a hundred of these things. It's like twelve or thirteen pages of index of just your work, but it's little thumbnails. Yeah, of all of that, them. That's actually my. <laughs> Not to disparage anything else in the book, but that's my graphically my favorite part of the book. I love, I love it. all the little. It's great. Know. So I was flipping through this, and I was just looking at the the content of the major, and then I flipped to the end, and I saw the index, and the index is one of my favorite parts. Also, I was looking for my name in it because right. I own that's one of your right. pieces. Yeah, you're an official collector. I know, right? I'm like at the back of this thing, but we we did a trade. I have an awesome Jason Baylor Lodge sculpture. I have an amazing room. painting sitting in my living room. So really the entire point of this podcast is to up the value of my... Yeah, we're just promoting ourselves shamelessly with Yeah, each other's help. It's my life. <laughs> I'm flipping through the book as we're talking, so I'm like looking at this. This is my dramatic pauses are okay. coming from... Um, I can't tell you the number of women who've stopped me on the street and told me how attractive I am since I got your sculpture. It's really... Oh, that's from me. Thank you so much. <laughs> so for all you men out there. So, okay, let me read. Let's get off of our high horses here yeah, for a yeah, second. Yeah. In the book, there is a, a piece of writing. There's multiple writings. One's an interview. There are, uh, yeah, there are two pieces. So one's a one's like a written introduction, I guess you'd call it, a, sort of an essay by, by Katie, Siegel. Katie Siegel, who's a curator back east and yeah. a very intelligent woman who was kind enough to agree to do that for me. And then the other written piece in the book is conversation between myself and one of my oldest friends, Eric Avery, who's a musician. He was a founding member of Jane's Addiction, and we've known each other for a long time. And we've had a lot of conversations over the years about making things, just sort of broadly speaking, and how people make things. And you know, it, I, I think most of my friends, you and, and any other artist, musician, writer, we all seem to have an interest in how things are made and created. Yeah. Like not just our own things, but yeah. Uh, why or why yeah. things are created. Well, uh, yeah, exactly. So what's the intent? Uh, so because I I've known, we've known each other for such a long time and, and you and Eric. Yeah. And he comes from the music world and I come from the art world. I thought it would be interesting to sort of compare the two because when I was younger, did you meet out here on the, the West coast? We met in LA when I was. So you're from the West Coast. I am. I'm from Santa Cruz, okay. California. But and then after high school, I moved down here to Los Angeles. To Los Angeles. How long were you here for? I was here from, I want to say, '92 to '99. So okay, seven years. Yeah, yes. yeah, that's a long time. Yeah, that's I as mean, long as I've been in LA right now. It's a long time, and it was also those are formative years. I was 18 when I moved down here, so well, in that time frame too, is this sort of like second second generation of punk right when i was in high school all the bands that i was sort of interested in seemed to be mostly out of la like who who were you listening to well in addition oh god no i can't <laughs> I'm trying to play you were listening to james or not sure yeah they were a, was a huge james fan and um still am oh god i i think it was just it was you know like the germs and so i guess it wasn't all contemporary but the germs and the doors and uh, doors are definitely not contemporary no they're not <laughs> <laughs> but but there was I, I think it was one thing that I've always kind of liked about the West is that and maybe it's just because I grew up out here so I'm more attuned to it, but there's a line of continuity that runs through things. You through know, through all things, like through music, through, through art. Through art I'm talking about. Art, well, but art actually, being music as well too. But yeah, yeah, yeah. The arts, which in a weird way, I find very prevalent in European art. Do you find like a, fam is it a familiarity or like what is the? No, it's a, it's a, it's an acknowledgement of one's roots without necessarily sampling it. So I feel like. It's not the copy of, it's. Yeah, it, which is funny because we can, this is a distinction I make in my own work a lot, but there's what I consider to be appropriation. Yeah. Which I guess maybe I would consider in the musical 
world sampling to be. Okay. You know, like where you're taking a direct thing. Did you play music or not? I did. What yeah. did you play? Guitar. And a, a band and stuff? Yeah, I played in some bands, but, uh, you know. In L.A. or up? In L.A. Okay. This is, I remember, I just had a flashback to our last conversation. We talked about this. Yeah, I remember I, I said I was a failed musician and a very successful drug addict, and that, that ended my music uh, career. We did talk about addiction last time, which actually, I, I forgot about that, but I wouldn't mind touching on that subject again. No, no, of course. So with a lot of European art, or maybe I should just say art that I'm attracted to, there's a, a taking what has come before and and using it as a, a material, but... And, and usually when you, you say that to people, they go, oh, you mean appropriation. But I don't mean appropriation at all because appropriation is a very specific act. It's, it's taking something as it's... You think it's like a copy? It's not. I don't because, well, it appropriation. is. But that sounds negative and I don't think of it as a negative. I don't think it's always a negative. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it is. But that depends. I mean, yeah. anything can be successful or not, I yeah. guess. But but I'm talking about taking something and sort of absorbing it. Yeah. So, so that, do you think it could be subconscious as well as sort of consciously absorbing it? Or? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Which I think that's something that I, I notice a lot. I, I find it in my own practice the, all the time. Yeah. Like I don't realize the, the impact that something is having on me or that has had on me until, and I've said this multiple times, but like six months, a year, two years down the road, and all of a sudden I look at a work and I'm like, oh shit, of course. Yeah. Like the, yeah. these are the sort of, these are the, the things that fall out of me understanding this in a, in a whole new light or being able to understand it now, which I didn't before. Yeah. I think the way that I always think of it, like when you recognize it, you, like by way of example, if you, if you hear a piece of music or you see a work of art and you think to yourself, oh, that's, that reminds me directly of this person or that person. Yeah. That to me is a, at best appropriation and at worst just ripping someone off. Well, and <clears> also <throat> derivative, right? Yeah. Or derivative. Yeah. But if you look at something and you go, well, I, I sense the presence or I can kind of see, you know, and then you just start rattling off like yeah. five or six different things, which is amazing. Right. Then it's kind of you're doing something different. Then you're then you're you've sort of absorbed. It's rich in context and sort of content. Yeah, and you're not directly lifting from somebody, and yet the history of that thing is in the work, and my, that's what my favorite work is. I feel it, like I, your work reflects that, though. Your own personal work reflects that quite a bit. I, it feels I, of. I, an, I hope so. I think I, it feels it, there's some interesting. So, like Katie writes, in, I want to talk more about Eric here in a second and how you got to meet him, but also your your interview. But I want to get back to sure. Katie Siegel's writing about your work because I think it's relevant in how we talk about all this stuff. And one of the this is a, a paragraph from the introduction here, or when she starts talking about your work, she says, "Perhaps is." efflorescence of allegory is one reason why McDermott's work appears so singular now in an era of seemingly awash with materialist, even naturalist abstraction. This particular quality is not so evident in contemporary exhibitions of painting. McDermott's allegorical tendencies are visible in his use of forms of Greek mythology in images of statues, busts, and vases. Archetypes like man, woman, artist, master, motifs whose repetition accrues significance, including a head and profile, an extended arm, female breast, atop a hat, or Santa suit. The conceptual frames from the art entail stories that, on one hand, are amusingly specific, the rewriting of Johann Wolfgang von Goethe's Love Life and Academic Footnote, and yet also rise to the level of broad allegory, the struggles of love, or good versus evil, or the corruption of the young artist. I thought that was really a well-written synapsis of your work yeah i did too and I, I wish that i could do it myself <laughs> i get asked to write things all the time and i, I can never go, do that uh, either but like that is um, a really thoughtful condensed sort of insight into your work it is I, I i remember reading it and thinking wow she got it you know which yeah. was um i was really happy about that not, i mean not just because it makes the book better but also because it's nice when when you realize somebody's looked at your work and or paid spent time with it right? yeah paid attention to like the the details of what's going on so i will admit like for me knowing your work i walk into the studio and i'm i'm a formalist 
for the most part. Mm-hmm. So like when I interpret or I start looking at work, I look at the formal qualities of the pieces to begin with. That's automatically when I walk into a situation, that's how I look at everything. Yeah. Me too. Probably. Actually. Is it? Yeah. So, um, these days for sure. Yeah. So can you explain your practice or how you go about putting together sort of the, maybe not necessarily, I mean, your, your work is for those listening, it's painting and collage and it's a mix of mediums, but I, I want to understand how you come to get to the content of where you're at and like what that, and more specifically, probably how you came to get to that point now, like through, through working for so long, you're in your mid forties now. Yeah. So like where, how did we get to the place now where you're pushing that forward? Wow. Well, slowly, <laughs> I think that, I guess maybe a starting point would be when did you start making this work? Okay. I can, I can, I can preface it a little bit too. So going through art school and learning how to make work and, and you went to, you went to grad school in New York and you went to undergrad in on the West coast. Yeah. For 10 minutes, I went to school here when I was a kid and then I dropped out to try and play music. And then years later I went back to the Academy of art, which is actually a very formal kind of traditional painting school in San Francisco. And then uh, from San Francisco moved to New York and went to Parsons there for grad school. Okay. Uh, we had a good class. It was me and Nick Van Wert, Nina Chanel Abney was in our class. This so. is why when you Google your name, Nick Van Wert comes up. Yeah. 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 We've been in a lot of shows and we're represented by the same gallery. So, yeah. but anyway, I always found, I don't know if it's setting a bar high or, or my aspirations were, were better or higher than my skills at the time or something. But I would find that I could make a competent painting or I could make a competent sculpture or a competent collage, but I always felt the absence of something like, like content or what? No, it it just felt too, too one dimensional. Like I would make a painting and I would go, well, that works. Were they like classic paintings or what were they? Not, not even, I mean, yes, when I was in school, but I quickly, even while I was in school, I sort of branched out from that and was doing sort of San Francisco-y kind of abstract figurative stuff but no what I mean is they would work as a painting but they wouldn't work as art if that makes sense like it was a very competent painting and somebody would probably dig it and you know think it was cool or hang it on their wall or whatever but for me it, it didn't do what art is supposed to do which is in my opinion kind of heighten and reflect the human experience back onto the viewer. And so I always felt that I mean, that's a high bar, man. It is a high bar, but if you know, the world has a lot of shit in it, it doesn't need more. <laughs> so yeah. we should aim for the high bar. Right. So I sort of, you know, I was a student. So when you're a student, you, you give yourself a little leeway and, and the work I was doing got me into graduate school and in graduate school, I, I kind of continued on. I'd moved away from painting and I got into making these collaged sort of blankety looking things that were covered in those sort of uh, fluffy pom-poms and that t- sounds intense. tied up. Was it very good? Dolls and stuff. Sounds sort of horrible, Dave. <laughs> it actually, it, it was better than it sounds. Let me put it that way. Um, and I, I, of course, because I was young and whatever, I thought, oh, I'm really on to something here, and uh, people like them. And then I got to graduate school, and everyone was like, oh, this is a great knockoff Mike Kelly. Oh, seriously? And I went, like, Mike Kelly? Okay. Who the hell is that? Yeah, like, yeah, isn't he the guy who did the Sonic Youth cover? Like, that was like, my, yeah. You know. And then you went and looked at the work, and, and then you I went like, looked oh, at the work. shit. I like, Fuck. I ripped off Mike Kelly. So then I kind of had to start over, and I started making collages, and collages were a way to to do it was the first time i'd ever made anything where i felt like i was making something that succeeded visually but also as a work of art and it was a total 180 from what i'd been doing because these blanket pieces were really huge and kind of i don't know they anytime you make anything really huge i guess there's some ego attached to it so so they were the exact opposite of that there were these little you know magazine page size collage works and i i made those for probably two or three years in grad school or in not? grad school and after yeah and it allowed me to incorporate painting and drawing and and found images because everything 
just became you know democratized it, it could all be just cut up and used there was no preciousness to any one yeah. thing like there was at the time for me anyway with painting so i started making those collages and then that can be an enemy of like making work i think is when things become too precious super yeah and i've i found that in my own practice i have to like get out of placing value on things and and step back and have them sort of be devalued to go into to understand how i should be making the work sometimes yeah, both from yourself and from the outside world, you know. Yeah, I, I don't like I, I when I talk about the work in the studio or when I have a studio visit, I often talk about it in terms of like there's two places of value within an object, right? The first value is like a monetized system that the outside world puts on an object to devalue it from that, but then the value system based on completely internal projection. So like if a an object or a piece reminds you of like a relative or a family member and the other one doesn't, you're going to want to use the object that feels comfortable and familiar right yeah and in much the same way with uh interpretation of content for painting yeah no definitely that picasso quote i think like no paint you can't make a good painting until you've destroyed it or something like that i'm, I'm paraphrasing but it's it is basically becoming the enemy of preciousness you know like if you you, you do something that whatever it is is getting you've got to be willing to destroy you've got to be willing to destroy and fuck it up right and that's what the making those collages allowed me to do because um it's funny i really didn't realize it. it when i started making them it felt kind of just like practice for something else and not like a real thing and almost a little bit twee you know like i was sitting yeah. there with my scissors and my exacto knife and my double stick tape and it was all just very clean and small and manageable but I realized pretty quickly that it's, it's actually an incredibly violent medium <laughs> because you're really just destroying things constantly and then putting them back together. And through having that, that, that sort of opened me up. So through having that openness, then you kind of take an, an around, a roundabout way back into efficiency and start getting rid of what doesn't need to be there. When you bring it back into painting, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. So how long did it take you to get out of the collage and get back into painting to figure out that you wanted to be doing that again i think i made the first painting from this what i would consider i guess my uh, current body of current work. body of work yeah. or you know my uh, mature sounds weird because i i don't know but it makes sense i have word, the same no it's totally when you figured out what you should be making right I had the, this conversation the, with somebody the other day and it was the exact same thing. It takes yeah. you a certain amount of time. The work that, yeah, the work that felt like my work and that, and that I would feel a voice. like 10 years later, I would go, yeah, no, I made that thing. Yeah. Um, so that, I think I made the first, uh, it was a yarn painting, which we can describe to people, but uh, I made the first one in 2007, I think. Okay. So the yarn paintings, mm -hmm. just so people know what they are, or you could probably give a better description than I can maybe. Yeah. So, it's sort of just a, a way of categorizing things that I think makes it easy to talk about. But like, I think it's done that way in the book to some degree, there's gold work and yarn work because those are two gold mediums. is a prevalent color within the pieces often. Yeah. It's it, gold, leaf, gold leaf. It's actual yeah. gold. And then there's yarn and, and historically I used black yarn mostly because the way I got into it was it was, and this is another thing that's been consistent with anything that I've done that I feel good about is that it it started as a reaction to something so my my wife and i were in england and i saw a piece called the wilton diptych that i think was at the national gallery and on one of the panels of the diptych there was a it's it's the top is gold leaf and the bottom is painted black like a sort of a sea of grass and then there's an almost invisible white stag sitting in the grass and i was just really taken with that combination the gold and the black i just found it really striking and I'd been working with some graphic images and I thought, oh, this would look great if I followed that road. So the gold was pretty easy to figure out. I, you know, just followed the lead of history and decided to use gold leaf. Yeah. The black was tougher because paint instantly seemed like too gray or too plasticky or yeah. it wasn't. It wasn't as. It wasn't absorbing. Didn't have the depth. Yeah. And then I started, I actually even tried velvet. <laughs> uh, that didn't work. And I was working for an artist at the time, Matthew De Jackson. Yeah. And he was using yarn in this way. Not the same way you do. Not the same way. Well, the technique is the same, but the thing, the intention and the end result was totally different. He uses 
multicolored stuff and and breaks it at the time i think it was it was very hippie-ish kind of i hope he doesn't mind me saying that but i think it was like something that he was trying to reference with that material and i just wanted it formally yeah the material had a context yeah so for him yeah and for me it was like a formal thing yeah. like if I if I take this technique, but it had a function, but erase all the color and just make it in black, then it just becomes this so, thing that completely absorbs light. So if you're looking at one of these yarn paintings, what is happening is there's yarn laid next to each other on the surface of the painting in a linear form. Yeah, it's really hard to describe. Um, it's it's yarn that's laid down flat on the canvas, and the strands are butted up next to one next another. Next to each other, yeah, and the method of application so it creates a surface yeah it creates a surface that's sort of geometrical sort of brush strokey and because you cut it as you go because it's not woven it's uh it's glued so you cut the ends of each strand so all those cut lines together sort of make an inverse pattern of, yeah so from a few feet back it just looks like this massive absorbent it doesn't read in photos either no it does not read all i remember coming so when we did the first podcast, I hadn't seen the work in person. Right. And then I did a studio visit with you in New York afterward. Like, uh, I don't know, it's got to be eight months ago. I did a studio visit with you, and I remember seeing those for the first time, and it was like, holy shit. Like, these are crazy. Like, the richness of what is happening, they look like brushstrokes. They feel like a brushstroke. The, the depth in what is happening with those marks through that yarn is pretty incredible. And I couldn't, for the life of me, take an image of it that, showed what was happening yeah i know it's impossible i mean that's uh especially in this day and age when art is sold most of the sold on sold a pdf by jpeg <laughs> yeah yeah it's uh i'm really sort of shooting myself in the foot with that and i mean that's a that's the thing about my work in general that i'm i'm the least internet friendly artist i know because i think like on the one hand i have a graphic sensibility that you yeah know, you can see that yeah so so the work kind of graphically looks good sometimes online but not all the time not all the time <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> hopefully more often than not. <laughs> but i'm totally aware that there's this whole aspect of the work that just doesn't come across unless you see well, it in this person. is you you have to see the work in person it is it really that show for grim that i just saw was really just sort of amazing and the book is amazing because it shows the work in really more detail than I've ever seen any of the images I've seen before, it, it really puts them in a light that you don't normally see them in. Yeah, well, I mean, over the years, we've actually found photographers who are able to capture what's going on really well, but then there's also context and things like that, which I think the book does a great job of delivering. So let's go into, let's talk about Eric a little bit. We were gonna jump back to that. Sure. But it's not just Eric. I wanna know about like LA and moving down here. So you came down here and you were gonna be an artist or what were you gonna do? Playing, you were gonna be a, a musician. No, I was going to go to school to study and become a graphic designer because when I was in high school, I was sort of an aspiring ne'er-do-well. <laughs> and uh, you know, I got into drugs and things like- Even in high school? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so my- What type of drugs were you doing? Like everything what type of drugs did you have? Uh, Seriously, so it was anything that was uh, yeah, e no, easily available. Uh, yeah, I, I was. Uh, no, I, I. Okay, so, so I'll rewind a little bit here. I, I think I grew up with the, what would I call it, other itis. You know, like I wanted to be somewhere other than where I was. Right. And that was in every way. It was you know geographically, but but especially mentally and culturally and you know the the world around me santa cruz is beautiful but it's also very provincial do you have siblings or not i do have a younger brother yeah how much younger two and a half years okay and he's still he, he lives in santa cruz were you guys close or not yeah i'd say we were close i mean yeah you know we were brothers, was he so similar we... in in that thought process of not wanting to be there too or no nah, well the evidence would say no because he he left several times but he always came back right you've never gone back I, I went back one or two times for short periods of time, sort of against my will. Like I kind of, you know, burned whatever like rehab bridge I was on. It kind of, you know, like I, I left LA once just because things down here really weren't going well. And, yeah. and you needed a place to crash. I just need, yeah, I needed a place to crash. Basically that's kind of what Santa yeah. Cruz was in my adult life was a place to crash. So 
but anyway, so when I was in high school, I I was a good student, but I just I was totally disinterested in it. Like yeah. I just wanted to be somewhere else, and that kind of resulted in me looking into music and art, and and it just I all the people that I looked up to had kind of done certain drugs and had a certain vibe and were part of a certain kind of w were those people in like a higher regard like literature or those people in your community literally everybody from like oh no not my community i'm but I'm you're actually, talking about people you read about or people that you like bands i listen to okay. you know everybody from you know, if the, you were going to have a road the red map. hot chili peppers, the yeah. Lord Byron. You so know, if like you were going to, if you were going to do a roadmap for how to be successful, that was part of in that. The, it was a, an experience was, that they had. It was that, but it was just more like I, I relate to this music or this writing or this painting and these people all live this way. So, so I should live that way too. Or because, at least experience. Yeah. Or at least give it a shot. Yeah. And to, to some degree for a while it, it worked because I, I felt like, okay, well I've found this identity. Like this is who I am. I'm, I'm indie rock art. That was even in high school. Junkie guy. <laughs> yeah. Were your parents conscious of that? No, I don't think so. I mean that, you know, I got into trouble like every kind like of any kid. kid does. And I remember one time I think I, I had a, a sort of friend who, who kind of half ratted me out or something, but but I, nothing I, big, nothing, nothing big. your and parents would have like, it would have raised a red flag and been like, yeah, Get Dave help. And I was admittedly, it was early stages of all that stuff. So I wasn't getting you into like a lot of trouble and, and there were no red flags going up in other areas. So, so you come down to Los Angeles yeah. and you're going to be a graphic designer. You yeah, drop out oh, of just really quickly. So yeah, sorry. the reason that I got into graphic design was because I was sort of blowing it at school because I didn't care anymore. I was probably not going to graduate, but I had a, an art teacher. And he basically kind of made a deal with me. Like, you, you be my TA, and all you have to do is in show up. In high school. Yeah, in, in high school. And all you have to do is show up and just, you know, you can just paint. Paint or draw or do whatever you want, but you just have to show up. And if you do that, then I'll give you the credits. And, and the and, school allowed that? Uh, I, I mean, by that point, it was all, all I needed was elective. So it didn't and, matter. Yeah, so, so they were like totally, well, they, that's really nice of him. It was. He was kind of my first hand that because it could have went a completely different boat. direction yeah i could have i could have dropped out and yeah the guys i know back home who dropped out and got into not around didn't didn't fare too well yeah, yeah. so after that uh, i was dating a, a girl at the time who was a bit older than me and she was from here and so immediately after graduating we moved to la and i started going to school here and then just very quickly quit because i at Within that, a semester or something? Yeah. Because at that point, I just really decided, you know, I want to play music. And So were you working outside of, like, playing music or not? Working on art? No, just a job. Yeah, I had a bunch of you were just making crappy jobs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sold coffee to Nicole and OJ at... Are you serious? Brentwood Starbucks. Really? Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, was that one of those moments when the news hit and you were like, oh, my God. Yeah, I quit the job by then, actually. But it was a, a guy I was playing music with also lived in Brentwood, and I was driving to his house that morning, and there were the police. Did you drive by it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Holy he, he lived shit. right around the corner, literally. Did you see Cato ever? I did see Cato. Cato was a regular also. Yeah. The, hmm. yeah. Interesting. Okay, so... <laughs> um, yeah, tangent. But anyway, uh, yeah, so so I came down here and I quit art school and uh, I threw my lot in and tried to... You're making musician. music. Yeah. So is this where you met Eric or not? No, I met Eric... Okay, so there's a little, a little wavering back and forth here. I actually did get intervened upon at a certain point shortly after I'd moved to Los Angeles because that girl that I'd moved down here with sort of had an episode <laughs> so you mean and you had an intervention yeah people came to like because you were doing drugs and yeah, shit. yeah yeah and so they said okay you have to so who was it was it your was, family it was or? a small intervention it was just my parents okay but they <laughs> they knew something was wrong they came and they tried they'd, to help. they'd been explicitly told dave is doing these okay. things and needs help so uh so i went to a rehab hospital here and through mutual acquaintances i ended up uh meeting a bunch of people and eric was one of them and he, he you know i don't think through rehab and stuff. i don't think it's a secret he's he's been sober for a long time so. yeah so um, how long did it take you then you're sober now yeah how long did it take you to become sober 
after this event? Maybe did you do rehab multiple times or what was? I did Baker's dozen, thirteen times. Is that right? Yeah. So All... I so I had a period of of um holy shit of almost two years from eighteen to I guess twenty when I I wasn't I was clean and I was part of the recovery oh, really? community in LA and that's actually when I forged most of the friendships that have lasted but a lot of us were still very young and your kids kind of weren't ready to, yeah, yeah. to pack it up yet so and also I think that when you're it's not exclusive to people with drug problems but you know there's this thing that when you take away the drugs if you don't have something else to kind of you're gonna fill it with something yeah it, and or or if you don't you just kind of go nuts and so I think I had a two-year period of kind of going nuts and, and then I got back into drugs. relapse yeah and so over a, I think it was five years I think that I was doing that and then in 2000 I I quit again so what was the reason for quitting then it was actually because I I realized that I had all of these things in life that I wanted to do it was your own decision yeah 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 no I mean I'd had I'd had plenty of people hints from society (laughs) that I should stop but uh, that wasn't I'm I'm not good at taking it isn't that I find that like unless somebody wants to do it it's not going to happen often. Is that the case or not? I think that's probably true. I mean, I, I think that I can't speak for everybody. I'm sure there are people who initially sober up and aren't doing, you know, they're doing it for somebody else or to save their job or something. And it actually sticks because they go, Oh, actually my life is a lot better better now without that thing. But I think more often than not, it has to come from the, there's gotta be a desire themselves somewhere. Yeah, I think. So were you in LA in 2000 then? No, I had, I had. You'd uh, said that you moved. Yeah, I had, I I had used up Los Angeles at that point. And so I I needed a place to crash. So I I moved up to Santa Cruz and I was there pretty briefly and then uh, decided just to, because actually, because in a weird way to bring it back, I, because of art, because I, I'd been around this community of really creative people and I had these very strong aspirations isn't even the right word. Like I, I needed to do this. I needed to make things. I ne- and, you needed that. And outlet. at the time I wasn't even sure what I needed to make. Well, I, I actually, because you thought it was music. I thought right? it was music. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I just realized, you know, I spend all of my time talking about the one or two little minor glories that I had in my life and aggrandizing those or talking about all of the. I mean beforehand. Beforehand. Yeah. Or talking about all of the amazing things I'm going to do next week. And I just kind of realized that I was never going to do anything. If I, I had, um, one of the reasons that I, I mean, this is funny. There's many reasons, but one of the reasons that I decided to marry my wife or I decided it was time to not even time, but like she was the person that I wanted to, to, to be with. Cause I was in a marriage before and I oh, was divorced. Right. Yeah. So I was married and divorced really mm-hmm. early. And then, so I didn't know what, but I met this person and we were both in D, Washington, D.C. together. And I remember I always, in much the same way, I always had these ideas of what I would be doing or what, I remember saying something to her. I said, I've got this idea for a show. And then I want to do this and I've got this and I'm going to, I would do this and this and this. And like her only response off of that was then she was like, well, then do it. Yeah. And I was like, um, what? And I remember being taken about, I remember the conversation. It's so weird, but and she was like, well, then this has got to be 20 years ago. And she was like, well, then do it. And I was like, really? She goes, yeah, just do it. And it was the first time that I ever had anybody support me unconditionally in producing work. And I didn't understand, like it sort of, it took me aback because I didn't have anybody who was just telling me to go forward with this dream or this thought process and supported me wholly. And it was a very powerful thing to have that, to have that push or to have the, somebody say it was okay. Yeah. Do do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, totally. Yeah. And it's easy for someone on the outside, but when it's personal, it's, it's such a thing that really it matters. And I think that's where it's one of the reasons my career has continued to go is because of that conversation way back then. It is. And and I would wager because it's this way in my case, you, you have to be with somebody who, who gets it 
and and gets kind of what it is to you and supports it and well i mean and i'm not an easy person to live with so it's <laughs> like they i've heard that about myself <laughs> gets the and i think we you and i can there's a lot of debt in being an artist there's a lot of hardship there's a lot of sacrifice i go through it every day i talk to it with my uh, with my wife and my family all the time not everybody always agrees with me in fact most people don't but I know you relate in much the same way where the person that you're with supports you in a way that most people wouldn't. Yeah, totally. Well, I mean, in my case, it was a very explicit thing when my now wife at the time, girlfriend got So where, where did you guys meet? Oh, we met in San Francisco while I was going to school there. In, in grad or uh, no, in undergrad. In undergrad. Yeah. So you've known each other a long time. no. Okay, wait, wait. Between, let's back up. Let's okay, back up. Yeah, yeah. So you did Santa Cruz, you got off drugs, you became sober, and then you went to undergrad? Yeah, I always say I went back because technically I had started, you know, years ago. That's bullshit, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> Shattering my myths. Yeah, so um, so you went to undergrad later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In so, life, essentially. So I was 25 when I okay. cleaned up, so I went back uh, and, and did undergrad then. So, the, But that's when you met her. I met my wife toward the end. And your of, wife's name uh, is Maya. But I gotta, I gotta be honest. That is a while ago. We're not kids anymore. No, no, yeah. I'm sorry. I, I thought you meant before we got married. No, because, no, no, no. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, no. Now we've known one another a while. Yeah. Yeah. So, were you together? Have you been together this whole time or not? Yeah, since uh, we got together in 2005. And then you moved to New York together. Together. Yeah. To when you went to grad school. Yeah, it was just kind of one of those, uh, probably too much information, but we we got together kind of, she had just left a long-term relationship and I was leaving town. So we had these friends who thought we'd make a good, like, you know. Parting ways yeah, hookup? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Parting ways hookup. Yeah, you're like. And we'd known one another socially prior to that. So she did she stay in San Francisco and then move to no, New York later? She no, came with so, you in a short period of time? Yeah, so we'd been dating for like a month. And, and she moved with you? And I, yeah, and we kind of realized, wow. like, oh, we're in love with one another. So I, I just said, hey, you know, you want to come? And she, which was, in retrospect, I mean. Ballsy on her part. Super ballsy, because she had a really solid job and career. She was in fashion. and, and She was doing um, well. Yeah, she was doing great. I mean, she was basically, uh, she worked for a, a woman, and they made, like, high-end men's couturier She must have stuff. really liked you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so then you moved to New York. So we moved to New York. I went to graduate school and we just kind of decided during that time that we we're going to dedicate our lives to art, you know? Okay. Um, so I want to get back into why we started talking about her a little bit too. Yeah, and sure. I want to continue to have the conversation about you guys moving there. But first my point being the support mechanism behind your practice and what you do is she also helps you in the studio. She is a part of the process. She does, yeah. I mean, it's um, it's funny. We've had this conversation a few times recently because... Assist, you and her. Yeah, assistant doesn't really cover it. Like, No, she is a partner in... Yeah, but then at the same time, like we don't make work together. You know, like I'm the artist and... Yeah, but she's like your studio manager. Kind of, but also kind of... It's really... It's hard to put a parameters on. Like she's she's part because it's also like our life, you know? So it's, it's like, she'll talk to me about things that she finds interesting. And then those things end up making their way into the work. And then, yeah. So, I mean, I'm sure that if we weren't together, I would be making completely different stuff because it's all grown out of this life that we have created built. together. Yeah. So you created, but essentially you've created this thing where you work together now as well as, so yeah, no, no. I mean, beyond, you're together all the time. Beyond the hard to define part, yeah, we work together. We're not together all the time because I actually have I have an external studio where I go and make big messy. She doesn't go stuff. there. She does sometimes, and then sometimes we have a studio at home too. I get you. And so she doesn't uh, want to put up with you all the time. She doesn't want to <laughs> be around me. No kidding. Um, no, it's actually it's it's me because I have a a thing where certain parts of the work, like doing yarn or something, um, I can do with someone else there. But yeah. when I'm doing the painting, do you gotta be solo. I, I do. Yeah. It's, it's, I can't have other, you know, 
even if I absolutely love the person and everything that they're saying is gold that would make 10 new bodies of work. I just can't have. So when you get that giant studio and you have to hire your assistants, you're going to have to have a separate room to paint in. Yeah. 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 You'll be that artist where no one's allowed. No, you inside. know, it's, it's funny. I, uh, beyond, I mean, I've had temporary assistants and sometimes I think that I should have a full-time one, but I, so, so much of the work is like, you respond me personally responding to the thing that's happening at the moment i don't i've had a i've had an assistant in the studio for the last like week and a half or so and i've realized that for myself as well too i don't know how i would have somebody do the stuff that i'm doing i mean there's things there's tasks that can be completed but it's so independently me on so many aspects of it i don't know what to have somebody start and where they would finish yeah for me to take over yeah i mean yeah, I agree. Like I, I certainly, you know, I can say, well, this is how you apply yarn or this is how you do this or that, but I, you can't tell someone how to paint like you when no. painting. So, you know, so. so your wife is your, your partner She's, in the studio often, but also a support mechanism for you to produce your work and allows you to create the things. I guess when I'm talking about this and I talk about my own family too, is the support mechanism of when things are not, and we've talked about this, you are a, you're a full-time artist. Yeah. So to survive as a full-time artist is not an easy thing to do. Not always. <laughs> well, and, and particularly when you're, when you're both, there's no other source of income. You guys are both doing this full-time. Yeah, that's true. So, yeah. I mean, that's scary. It is. It leads to a lot of uh, stressful moments, definitely. I mean, the, my experience of, of being an artist professionally has been very feast and famine. So I have sometimes where I've thought, wow, this, if it's always like this, I'm going to be, you know. So when you worked up to the show at Grimm, were you thinking to yourself, I've got to sell the show out or I'm screwed because I'm not going to get another show in two years or three years or how do you go? Because I think I have that thought process when I walk into this. I do too. Although it's funny. So when I first started showing, you know, professionally, it was probably like 2010 and back then things were different you know people work was easier to sell yeah in short so um and i got i was fortunate you know and my first, you did well my first few shows did well better than i thought you know like if someone had told me oh you'll make this much money from your art in 2011 i'd have been like that's crazy and you know but but then did you put any of it away no <laughs> <laughs> i mean <laughs> in in fairness, most of it goes back into the work. I, I um, have the same thing. But uh, <laughs> sometimes sometimes it goes other places too. This is but, why we get along so well. That's right. <laughs> Blatant <laughs> irresponsibility. And then other time, or excuse me, after that, things started to go a little more roller coastery. And so... Does a roller coaster or your ups when you have a show and then the downs when you don't? Or when are the ups, speaking. Right? Yeah. Like, so there's this... What I but have, I've also had one. Mo- I've been really fortunate. Most of my shows have done pretty well, but I've had one or two that, that didn't do well. Didn't do well. What I have found for myself personally is w- when you're dealing with galleries, and I've had multiple galleries. And the thing with the galleries is that when you have a show, they're all on you. They're going to sell the bejesus out of whatever. They're going to attempt to sell the bejesus. But when you're in that middle period, it becomes more difficult. If they're not showing you at a fair. Or, or you're not doing the solo show, then you don't have the access to them showing the work to people as, as right. Readily. And that's what I, it's taken me a while to learn, and I could probably still be better at it because you have to find the right balance between letting your gallery know, like, I still need to sell things. I get you know? pissy sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I get pissy. No, but... I can be a dick. <laughs> because <laughs> I'm lucky to have a gallery that. I'm lucky to have a relationship with the individuals who run my galleries that know who I am and they know I don't mean to be a dick, but like, I just, I'm being honest. I think that, I think I can be like that if I feel that, that somebody isn't doing the job, doing the job. Yeah. So I've actually had generally great experiences with gallerists, but Grimm, who I've been with since 2009, 10, I always, I never doubt that they're pushing it, pushing it. Yeah. And I mean, there's, you know, it's, it's not like 
always the Dave show. I mean, they, you know, Grimm has They've got a, this is the thing. This is, this is one of the things I always, I, if I talk to other artists about this stuff too, is these galleries are a business. They're yeah, running a business. Totally. They have bills to pay every single month. Big bills, way bigger than mine. Way bigger than mine. Their overhead is exponential, especially if they're doing fairs and they're showing people at fairs. Yeah. I do not fault any of my galleries for ever not showing me at a fair or pushing my work sometimes because I know they've got to sell things. They're not, we're not dealing with this. We're, we're not on a level, at least I'm not on a level right now where my gallery can afford to not sell on a specific month. And that's not based on the gallery. We're just not showing a Hauser or, or Zwerner full time. Right. I'm not on that roster. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I mean, even if you are, it's not a guarantee that, that everything's going to fly off the wall either. I mean, I, I no, I that's absolutely true. I think that all artists, even, you know, it's funny. I, last year I read that Kippenberger biography that his sister wrote. Did you okay. read that? No. Susan I, Kippenberger, I think. I didn't. I actually have, and I'm, this is maybe a conversation we don't need to have over this, but I have the book Kippenberger and friends, which is, have you ever seen this? No, it's awesome. It's really, really good. I, I'd seen the one by the sister and I purposely didn't get it because I got this one because I figured that the one by the sister might be biased in a certain way. Even if it's not intentionally biased, it's from a certain perspective. The Kippenberger, and I want to read it though. It's not that I don't. The Kippenberger and Friends takes interviews from like 30 people. Oh. And it's all of these different people from the gallerist to his sister to all the people in his life and not all of the studio mates. Uh, Olaf Eliasson is in there, I think. Huh. But it, they're not all flattering pictures of this individual. Like some of them are completely the opposite. And I don't expect the sister one is either. But to have that perspective, of, but they're quick reads also. Each one is like a page or two pages or three pages. It's really, it's very, I'll show it when you go inside. Yeah. Well, the thing about the book that stood out to me, I mean, obviously what you're saying is true. She obviously has the fondness for her brother, but she, she was quite frank about, you know, there being periods of time when his work didn't sell at all and when he was really broke and and effectively kind of crashing on people's sofas, even though he, oh, is that right? he was doing it in a very high style, you know, because he had friends who had chalets in the middle of the mountains and whatever. And, you know, he'd run out of money and go make paintings in a barn for yeah, a year. But how, how old was he when he died? He died in his like early forties or something, something like that. Yeah. yeah. Like, but I, I bring that up only to say like, but at the time he was really famous, you know, I mean, he was even being time. famous meant they were up and down. Yeah, absolutely. So, many I ups mean, and downs having uh, certainly it's probably easier to sell work when when collectors trust your gallery and i think fairly or unfairly when your work is being sold this out of a smaller gallery collectors are especially when you if, if it's a small gallery and your price point is low i think that it's like no skin off their i feel like we i i, I know you feel this way about Grimm and you just said it like you it's not necessarily a smaller gallery. It's a, no, it's, it, yeah, it's a, it's a mid-tier good gallery. Yeah, I was, right? I was speaking generally. Yeah. And but, I feel like my gallery and not Egby is the same thing. Yeah. Uh, um, I trust them sort of implicitly and I think they have a good reputation and it's a continued thing. I think even though when you find there was a article in the New York times middle of last year, I think when on stellar rays was closing and it was, and it talked about the closings on the lower East side and it gave percentages for what sales had been doing over the past year. And I think anything over or anything under 500,000 was negative 7% in like sales. Anything yeah. under a million was negative like 6%. But anything over, forgive me if these numbers are wrong, anything over 50 million a year in, in total sales for that space was up 17%. Yeah. So no, I think that's definitely you have trend. this discrepancy in in what's happening. And even right now we're having these conversations through Zwerner the other day mentioned this in an interview where he thinks that large galleries should subsidize subsidize small galleries at art fairs. Yeah, which I actually disagree with. I sort of do too. Tell me why you do. Because I'm all for helping people out and people have helped me out and all that stuff, but I I don't I just don't think it's you think it's good business or what do you not no, think? No, there's just something about it that kind of creeps me out. And I, and I don't even entirely know yet for uh, which well, aspect of it there is. But there's there's certainly a part of it that actually would be accentuating the trend that people are trying to to turn around by having that happen, which I think people think that if, if the bigger galleries you know pay more or subsidize smaller galleries that they're actually 
democratizing things or socializing things. I think it's actually sort of putting the smaller galleries in kind of a surf position. Yeah. Like, you know, how we, do you graduate into being a larger gallery? Yeah. And, and we exist at the graces of, yeah. of these larger galleries. And also if I ran a gallery, I wouldn't want to be thought of as the gallery that has to have somebody else money pay my from... bills. And if I were an artist, even I would feel a little bit weird about that. Like, because it instantly creates a class system because I mean, not that there isn't one already, but it, makes it concrete what's interesting about the conversation to me is that we're talking about having to pay these bills but we're not talking about the fact that the bills might be too expensive to begin with if basel or freeze or one of these places is charging you thirty thousand dollars for a booth and that is the thing that's putting galleries out of business then maybe the expectation that that's what a booth should cost is incorrect yeah but i think that the answer to that isn't to have the galleries that are making money subsidize subsidize it because i think that First of all, it's so weird, almost universally, whether you're an artist or an art dealer or even a collector, if the subject of an art fair comes up at dinner, everyone just gags. They're like, oh, there's too many and they're awful and they're so expensive. Yeah, but that's how they pay their bills. Yeah, but the funny thing is, no, like, so nobody likes it. And I remember, you know, when Grimm opened their space in New York, they put out this press release that I didn't know they were putting it out, but I was actually kind of proud to see it, which was... I'm paraphrasing, but it basically said like in an era where art fairs are becoming the dominant thing and and everything's being sold online, you know, we really believe in the, in the power of the exhibition and we really believe that work should be seen in person. Really nice. And I think the answer to the art fair thing is for galleries to just say, fuck you, you know, like just not do it. Just not do it. I mean, Jose from team who I don't know personally, but you know, he, he wrote that thing about you know, where he's not going to do another, he's not going to do any more art fairs. And I don't know anything about Jose's finances or, or what position he's in or whatever, but he gave some numbers that I totally believe, you know, you could easily spend over a hundred thousand dollars on an art fair as a mid tier gallery going in there, getting a booth on shipping on labor. Yeah. I mean, I, the thing that shocked me that I didn't even realize until a few years ago is galleries can go to say freeze or the armory or Basel or whatever and have a great fair and sell almost everything or even yeah. everything and still not make any money. Yeah. Like break even break maybe if they're lucky. Yeah. I know many galleries that went to Basel this year and broke even. Yeah. And you hear that. And you're thank, thank time, God that yeah. I broke even. And I'm so thankful to be invited to the club of being accepted at Basel. Yeah. And I've heard I've heard way more than one dealer say, "Oh, we sold that hundred and fifty thousand dollar painting, and you know, so that takes the pressure off because that breaks us even." It's, it's that's like, unbelievable, right? So you're keeping seventy five grand, and that whole seventy five grand is covering your nut, basically, which is just insane. It's unbelievable. It's a lot of money. And the thing with art fairs is, you know, they're glorified trade shows. That's all they are. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, I guess. But trade shows exist for a reason. It's to sell product. They do. But I I don't know what's going to happen because humanity constantly lets me down. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it seems like there's that we've kind of... You think there will be a reckoning? To use the contemporary term, they've sort of jumped the shark, you know? Yeah. And, and I don't know how much longer it's going to be before... Because there's also a lot of turnover now in, in art fairs. Like, um, You mean the booths or who's, who's there? The or? exhibitors. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. you have a lot of people who come and they, they're there for a few years and then they ultimately just decide, oh, it's not worth it. And, and they bail and they go back to doing... Well, but you know where that turnover is? That turnover isn't in the top galleries. No, it's in the... The mid- turnover's in the mid-level galleries. Yeah. yeah. And, and it will keep going for a while because, you know, it's like when there's a waiting list or something, it's, it, you know, they're... Right now, there are people waiting to take the spots of the people that say, this isn't worth it. I know, but, I, I know galleries that specifically, like, mid, like upper mid galleries that have gone out of business because they've done fairs. Yeah. Like, specifically I mean, because they've done one fair, spent so much money on it, threw a dinner, did such and such, yeah. just blew their load on, on, on that one thing that they put themselves so much in debt. Yeah, I mean, like a, a, a modest, you know, decent-sized booth that freeze is, what, 50 grand? Yeah. And then, you know, you if you're bringing in artists internationally, you can... Is it 50 now? I thought it was yeah, like 30. I think it's... Uh, someone told still, me 50. It, I'm, I'm anywhere not, in yeah. between those two numbers I'm not, is not, still absolutely... I'm not cutting that check, thankfully, so... Yeah. 
Um, but think, and it, okay, so I guess if you look at it in terms of like, what am I going to sell my work for? It is no wonder that you can't get shown at a gallery of a certain level then if the work is not selling for upwards of thirty-five dollars to $45,000 a piece. Yeah, I mean... Because they, there's no point in a large gallery trying to sell that work unless they're going to build your career to a point where they can sell it for that much eventually. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I actually, um, I've talked to some friends about this, and this is purely anecdotal, but anecdotal information gathering. It seems to be that the work that sells the easiest is either in the 25 or less range or the hundred or more range. Yeah, but, anything in between there is. And that's what a lot of mid-level galleries are selling. So, yeah, oh, it's God interesting. <laughs> I don't, I don't know. It's, so it's hard. let's get off of uh, sales. We're not going to fix the art world. Yeah, that okay. ain't happening. So, but I wanted to talk a little bit about. So you moved to New York, you and your wife. You worked as an artist assistant. I did. Yeah. So when I was in grad school. I was one of two people who coordinated the visiting artist program. Yeah. And I had artists that I already knew about that I liked. And then I had uh, artists that I just see their shows. So I, I'm trying to remember who I invited. I invited Jim Hodges, who I was a big oh, that's fan cool. of. I'm still a big fan yeah, of. Yeah, yeah. I can't remember who I was. But Matthew Day Jackson was one of them. Was I, he showing at Peter Bloom? No, he was showing, uh, this was 2005, and he was showing with Perry Rubenstein. Really? His, oh, my God, Perry. Yeah, Perry. It was his first show, actually, his first solo show in New York. And I went and saw it and thought it was great. It was weird. It was it was one of these shows where I walked in and, and a lot of, like, because I'm not an artist who, to me personally, and this is just me personally, art is about answering the higher calling stuff. Like, like I talked about earlier, like, like I say with my own work all the time, what I'm trying to do is create something that elicits a feeling. I'm not trying to illustrate a point or say something. Yeah. So when I went into Matt's show, there were a lot of things that I often kind of recoil at. There was like political stuff and very kind of personal stuff, but something about the work kind of it hit for you. It transcended that. Yeah. So, so anyway, I, I wrote to him and said, Hey, do you want to come and be a visiting artist? And, uh, he did. And, and we just kind of ended up keeping in touch. And then like a year later I sent out kind of a mass email like, Hey, I'm looking for a job. So and he was on it. He was on it. Cause he, you know, it was just a people I knew artists and things. And, and he wrote back and said, hey, I might be able to help you out. So, and I didn't even know he meant for him, but <laughs> so, so I went and met him and, and I think I ended up being his actual first real assistant. Oh, is that right? Yeah. I think he'd had like one guy. And then was he at Peter or when, when did that, that <coughs> I, I joined, I, I joined his studio. I'm talking about it in You were his term. studio. I was his studio. I started working for him. I can't remember the exact date, 2007 or 2008. It was right after he left Perry. During that first couple of years, he started working with both Grimm and with uh, Peter Bloom. Oh, interesting. And so it all comes full circle, Dave, with all Grimm. It comes full circle. <laughs> well, it does, actually, because so in 2009, Matt was having a show at Grimm in Amsterdam, and he and Simone Subal yeah. Uh, yeah. Cu curated a group show to kind of. And you were in it? I was in it. Nick was in it. It was a good show. Justin Matherly was in it. Rosie Kaiser was in it. Christina Mackey. I'm forgetting people. Now but you're just name dropping. Now I'm just lame, lame <laughs> dropping. That was a Freudian <laughs> slip. Um, yeah, it was a great show. And uh, so Jorg kind of kept in touch with a few people, and Nick and I were That's cool. two of those people, and we just ended up working with them. So, so how long did you work at the studio? Three years. So I quit in 2010, fall of 2010. And that's when you decided to do your art stuff full time? That's when I'd already decided it fit circumstances weren't cooperating. So um, it's funny, Matt used to like give us crap all the time. He'd be like, I quit my job after I had sold a painting for $2,000 and you guys... Like, By the way, that sounds like a terrible idea. It does sound like a terrible idea, but it worked out for him. But, you know, he'd, he'd make fun of us because we'd, at that point, we'd, we'd sold a bunch of work. You've been there a while. He, he yeah. thought, I think he thought we both should have left the nest a little earlier than we did. I had, I left when I got my, for, which happened almost simultaneously, I got offered two shows by, at the time I was working with Duva Berlin, 
uh uh-huh. and also grim and they both actually signed me up on the same day that's amazing <laughs> what a weird. good day it was a good day um <laughs> and then yeah i was at the met actually and i got like both messages within, at the met? within five minutes i got emails no. from both of them saying like hey we'd like to add you to the gallery holy shit and then shortly thereafter they both offered me shows and and so we set dates and and they were they were different shows showing different types of work but they were fairly close together one was at the end of 2010 and the other was at the beginning of 2011 so i realized in order to you couldn't make that work yeah i needed to i needed to quit in order to be able to pull it off and have the time to do it so so that's what i did dave um thank you for coming on the show man oh yeah Absolutely. You're like, I'm surprised it's over. I, I was. I have uh, no concept of time right now. I think we're doing like, this is longer than the other button, but how would we even know? How would we even know? <laughs> Dude, thank you so much for coming on. Of course. Thank Always you. Always lovely to hang out just in general. Yeah. Mm-hmm.